I think a lot starts changing when you can actually trust the data. With Flurry, you can actually grab the exact version of the database that was being used for that integration at exactly 12.01 a.m. and 0.23 milliseconds, and you can actually see and know what was in there, figure out what broke, and fix it. Welcome to the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. In this episode, I interview Brian Platz. He's the co-CEO of Flurry. Flurry is a new kind of blockchain database that enables applications to have a wide range of functionality from time travel to immutability uh, to a full REST API and a lot of advanced functionality built in. In this episode, Brian and I get pretty technical as he explains some of the decisions they made and why they decided to build a database with these kinds of functions and functionality. If you're into blockchain and you're building a decentralized application, this is an amazing episode, so please stay tuned. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. From predictable pricing to flexible configurations to world-class customer support, you'll get access to all the infrastructure services you need to grow. Plus, DigitalOcean's community provides over 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean with a free $100 credit at do.co slash hackernoon. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Brian. Hey, Brian, tell us a bit about who you are and what you're working on. Oh, thanks, Trent. Uh, first of all, it's good to be here. I'm Brian Platts. Uh, I am with Flurry. It's a project we've been working on for about four years. I'm the co-CEO. And uh, Flurry is a really new uh, and we think much improved way of storing data. So it is a modern version of a database, but it incorporates some interesting features in it that I think are pretty unique. Uh, I have been in the enterprise software business for um, 25 years now. So my focus and kind of uh, the problems we're trying to solve with this product tend to focus a little bit more towards enterprise software, uh, but they're not exclusively focused there. And uh, my co-founder and I who started Flurry, we've been, you know, at uh, working together, building software companies for um, over 20 years together now. So um, yeah, glad to be here. Awesome. Yeah, and I really, I really want to dive into what, uh, what you're working on here because this is a unique project. Um, you know, we've, we've had a lot of guests come on the show and talk about blockchain and, you know, talk about how they want to build decentralized applications. And, you know, they talk about all, all the benefits of what blockchain can do and those kind of things. But uh, you're the first person we've had on the show that is actually building the, a database. Um, so... You know, that has a database background that's uh, experienced programming and coding one. Um, and, you know, you've built this kind of interesting hybrid solution with what you guys have created with Flurry, uh, where you kind of have like a centralized element of your database structure. And then you also have a blockchain component that's completely decentralized. Um, so let's maybe kind of like start with, you know, the foundation of you know, what you, what you started building this database on and why you made some of the decisions you, you made. Yeah, so, you know, blockchain is really a collection of technologies that um, are not new in any way. Uh, they're things we've been using for quite some time, but it's the collection of those that brings some unique capabilities. And um, how you combine them determines which capabilities you have. So, 
uh, ideas around full decentralized blockchains are gonna involve certain types of consensus mechanisms that enable that. Um, but there's other pieces to blockchain as well as far as creating like immutable data, data that's tamper resistant, that's provable, uh, that you can get those characteristics whether it's decentralized or not. So um, it depends how many of the blockchain technologies you kind of layer together as far as whether or not it comes out as something that looks more like Bitcoin or something that looks more like something else. Uh, and at least part of our approach has been to allow you to kind of turn on or tweak those characteristics depending on what you're looking to accomplish. So, you know, Flurry is focused on allowing you to create a, um, a custom data store, but using blockchain technology, but you get to pick and choose how many of those characteristics you want to use. You can use enough so that it is a full decentralized blockchain running across multiple parties. No one has individual control, or you can have it where maybe it's something you're running more internally, but you still get a lot of those benefits like immutability, you get proof, um, uh, tamper resistance, a history of everything that happened. Um, so it depends on the application you're building, what you're looking to accomplish, but you can kind of roll in the characteristics that you want to roll in, and, and that's been our approach. And delivering that is a database, and when we think of a generic database, you know, a lot of people kind of call blockchains databases, which they are. They're just very um, inflexible really slow databases, <laughs> meaning they're not really useful for anything outside of what they were originally programmed for. And that, of course, contrasts a lot to databases we use to build applications like an Oracle or a MongoDB or a MySQL or Maria, uh, because these are more generic technologies that we can apply to all kinds of different problems. It solves a fundamental problem for our technology stacks, the data tier. And so our focus was really on building a tool that's as versatile that can be your data tier for your whole app, but incorporate some of these blockchain technologies that, again, you can pick and choose which ones you want, uh, but to give you some brand new characteristics that you just can't get from a database, like actually proving the integrity of your data. Mm -hmm. And so can you kind of explain what is, you know, so you've got kind of two components here from my understanding of it. You've got kind of this centralized component where you can have what is slightly more of a centralized database. Um, and that's based off of uh, graph, kind of a GraphQL kind of setup. Um, so can you kind of explain what that is to the, the audience so they have an understanding? Yeah, so I guess I'll say, you know, talk about the graph database side uh, for starters. So we elected to use a graph style database as the way to interface and get value out of the information you're storing. So when you think about querying, I mean, basically it's something that's gonna allow you to ask a bunch of types of questions. Um, so we have graph style databases, we have NoSQL style databases, we have relational style databases, and each of these are designed for trade-offs. I, I guess in the simplest form, we opted for a graph style database, however, what we would call an ACID compliant graph style database. So we have transactional integrity uh, within the system. And we opted for that format because we view that as being, giving you like all the benefits that you get out of a relational database and even then some. It just kind of aligns with how data comes out of your system as to how we're building apps today. When you think about, you know, I'm building a web app and I'm using Angular, or React, or a lot of these frameworks, um, you're always thinking about your data and the state in the app as a tree. And you know, a graph database is a tree. It's basically doing that exactly. So it aligns well with that. Things like artificial intelligence, uh, it aligns well with kind of it, how it needs to pull data. So we're really bullish on graph database style query interfaces. 
Um, you know, NoSQL, of course, has its place as well, although I think we see NoSQL used in a lot of places where maybe the characteristics it brings aren't necessarily needed. Uh, NoSQL really allows you to get uh, extremely high write performance, and in many cases, extremely high read performance. So it's great for things that are true, like internet scale. Like it would be really hard to run Twitter in a traditional relational database. Not, not that you couldn't do it, but um, NoSQL brings some of those characteristics that actually make something like Twitter a lot, a lot easier. Uh, but you pay the price in query, so it becomes much more difficult to ask a lot of questions. In most cases, you lose transactional integrity. And of course, our old traditional relational database is great because we generally have ACID compliant transactions. We have the ability to query it in a lot of different ways. Uh, but at the same time, it's also built on a framework that we invented, I don't know, 35, 40 years ago with a lot of different constraints that don't exist today. Um, so we think relational is great as well, but each of them have, have their place. So we focused a bit more on a graph style interface for Flurry. However, it, it technically is possible to use any of these interfaces. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. From predictable pricing to flexible configurations to world-class customer support, you'll get access to all the infrastructure services you need to grow. Plus, DigitalOcean's community provides over 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean with a free $100 credit at do.co slash hackernoon. Awesome, and you've also you've also got a uh, kind of a permission model that you've built into the database as well. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and what that is? Yeah, you can sort of. I guess the the two second thing is it's like a stored procedure on steroids kind of capability, uh, but it really needs to be there to be able to run a blockchain. And and I guess I'll talk a little bit about more how we architected the product. So. A traditional database, you have a server you throw up and that server runs double duty. It handles all your queries and you also send all your updates to it. So one of the things that we focused on doing was actually teasing those two parts, those two parts apart. Um, so we have a piece we call the distributed ledger component, and you don't have to run it full distributed. It's up to you, but that's what it's designed to do. So you don't really query it. You don't ask any questions. And if you're, you know, if you're in a blockchain mindset, you can sort of think of that as like the miners. The miners are running things that are just processing updates, and they're not really designed to like issue ad hoc queries to. So our distributed ledger component is outputting a blockchain. And a blockchain is really like an append-only log file. Um, you know, we're cryptographically hashing it to secure it and link it and do a lot of other things. But essentially, that's what we're creating using some special the format. The format that we've chosen to use to output our data is the World Wide Web Consortium RDF style data. And a lot of people call this triples or triple store sort of data. It's a very generic way of representing data that's really versatile. We can pipe it into any of the types of databases that we talked about. Um, and certainly our graph database, which we more refer to that piece as FlurryDB, really just picks up this RDF style log format from the, the blockchain, from this uh, ledger component that it's outputting inputs it and turns it into a powerful graph style database and also a time traveling database. So the ledger component itself, if you're gonna run it decentralized, you need one of the kind of three core things that every blockchain needs, which is uh, rules. 
Mm-hmm. And that's really where this model comes in. So you can think of every blockchain as sort of like, you know, I'll use Bitcoin because it's a simple blockchain. Um, what you do is when you want to spend money or get money or something's going on, you submit a transaction. So the transaction is really just updating kind of Bitcoin's proprietary database. So it only accepts certain fields. In the case of Flurry, you define the schema, you define the data you're submitting, but the process is the same. You're sending a transaction to the network and you're signing that transaction with a private key. And that allows you to prove that not only the data hasn't been tampered with in transit, but prove who originated it. So now we have proof. Uh, As this goes through the network, it can't be tampered with and we know exactly who it came from. So that's going to hit essentially the miners, or in our case, the distributed ledger component, which are going to go through and pack one or maybe more transactions into a block. And they're going to go through that, but before they accept the transaction, they have to process rules. So in Bitcoin, you know, these rules are hard-coded in there. There are simple rules, like you can't spend money you don't have, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You can't uh, double spend money. Uh, but in the case of Flurry, we have uh, what we call smart function, and it's, and, and it's a lot like smart contracts, if people are familiar with that. But it allows you to actually program in custom rules around your data schema. Uh, so, you know, in the simplest form, maybe you're saying you're going to store, you know, an age attribute for a person. Um, and that's going to be an integer, but an integer can be, you know, up to 2.4 billion uh, values. So you want to create maybe a more constrictive rule that says, well, this has to be between 13 and 120. So that's a very simple rule. So we use smart functions to be able to create these sorts of rules. And a more advanced version of those rules is to start actually using the identity, which again, we have from the original signature of the person who sent it, use that identity to um, do permission-based rules. So this is where you start getting into saying, say I launched a a LinkedIn network on FlurryDB, a simple rule would be you can only update your own profile data. Mm -hmm. And we know if it's you or not because you're the one who signed that transaction. And if you're trying to update someone else's record but you signed the transaction, we can easily have a rule that says, well, only the person who signed this transaction can update records that are attached to the same identity. Therefore, you can't update someone else's sort of like LinkedIn record. Uh, So that would be an example of applying permissions. One of the things we did after we did that, and that's gonna be required to run this decentralized, is we said, well, as long as we've programmed in these rich permissions, why can't we also use them for the query side as well? So of course, all the miners, all the participants in the blockchain, they're pretty much by necessity, because they can't validate data unless they can see it, they're gonna have visibility into everything. But we allow these same rules to also be used on the query side, where if you want to sort of uh, have your database behind a app server, which is pretty common, or even not behind an app server, we have the ability to identify via the same mechanism who's issuing a query, a read, so not an update. And what we do is we'll allow write those style smart functions, except what they do is they just automatically start filtering out pieces of data, these little RDF triplets, filter out the things you can't see. And what it means is everyone can actually have a completely custom database. So our goal with this is, and you don't have to use it for the read side, but if you do use it for the read side, you can start actually just opening up like direct connections to your databases to people and they can issue whatever queries they want because you no longer have to modify the queries 
for some arbitrary permission model you put in because the database itself is controlling your permission model. And what happens when we build apps usually is we end up creating tens, sometimes hundreds of API endpoints because most of them are just restricting permissions to different types of data. And every time we get a new customer and they want some new data in some new way, got to build another API endpoint, we're trying to restrict permissions. And here we're actually opening up the notion that you may really not need any API endpoints, or maybe you only need one or two, because you can start to allow people who want to build custom integrations, custom apps using your data, uh, custom APIs, they can just query your database because it's already filtered out every piece of data they can see. And you don't have to worry about them issuing different types of queries or whatever it happens to be. So we think it's a pretty powerful concept. It's not going to be for everybody, but uh, it's a pretty cool thing, controlling permissions, not only on the right side, but on the read side with these smart functions. Yeah, no, it's definitely a different approach to be able to have that functionality within your actual database structure. So as you said, you're not having to reinvent the wheel every time you're creating an application. You know that any app that you're building on your database structure has that those APIs and those endpoints already in place because that's what the database does. So it, it kind of removes that from the app developer from having to constantly reduplicate that functionality every time they build an app. Um, so, I mean, to me that makes sense because there's a lot of functionality when you're building an app, you know, from basic account management to, you know, basic, basic authentication, you know, different, different functionality that pretty much every most web apps that you're building need. Uh, so if that's being handled at the database layer, then you don't have to build, you don't have to spend weeks or months going and architecting this stuff. It's already just built into your database. Um, so yeah. I can definitely see the benefits there. Yeah. And more and more people are, you know, building multiple apps that talk to the same data source. And the nice thing here is now I don't have to implement multiple security models in every single app that's controlling data access. And um, there's a little anecdote I like from one of our customers that they're, it's a competitive market. They're on the West Coast. They want to hire um, uh, software engineers coming in. And one of the things they want to be able to promise is that in your first week of employment, you can push production code. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that actually gives them the you know, sanity or the sound mind to be able to promise that is because they're using FlurryDB in this permission model. So even if they you know, put in something where they're issuing a query they shouldn't be, and that got into production, there is no way the data would ever leak because the data is actually controlled at the source. Um, so just, you know, a, a lot of things start opening up when you, when you do embed permissions like that. And one of the other cool features of what you guys have built is your time travel functionality. So you've yeah. built an index into your database that allows you to basically go back in time uh, at the database level, but also, you know, you can tap into that uh, on the application side as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the time travel and indexing functionality you've baked into this? Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, time travel is really cool. So, we are an immutable ledger of every change that's ever happened to the database. Um, so, we have a full history of everything that's there. Uh, pretty much every traditional database you've ever used doesn't have that. They're what we call update in place. When you update information, it overwrites the data that was there. And you might have some transaction logs or things like that you keep around for a little bit, but for the most part, that data is gone. The only way to get it back is if in the future, you maybe have a backup 
of hopefully the moment in time you were looking to get back to. Um, but even between your backups, there can be multiple changes and you lose all of those changes in between backup. So because we knew we were always going to have this full history because it's required to prove the historical data, who put it in there, when it was put in, uh, we wanted to make that data immensely useful as well. So we focused on building a type of indexing that allows our database, our graph database, to understand time equally to how well it understands the data and getting around it. And so in Flurry, when you actually issue a query against a database, you're issuing a query against an immutable database at a very specific point in time. So oftentimes you're accomplishing that because maybe it's sitting in a web server, a request comes in, but the first thing you do when the request comes in is you grab a version of the database and you actually hold it like a variable. And you can pass this around to different functions. It will never, ever change. It is locked into that moment in time. If you ever needed, you know, a slightly newer version or to check up an update, you can always try and grab a newer version. But for one thing, it gives you this guarantee that you're never going to have data change underneath you. It completely eliminates database-related race conditions, which are a real pain in the ass for high-volume applications to try and be able to troubleshoot and save. Because uh, now you have a guarantee. You can work on this database for hours if you want, or seconds or minutes. It will never ever change underneath you. You can pass it around like a variable. Um, so that's pretty cool. So, but every single version is one of these immutable databases and you can work with a bunch of them at the same time. When you issue a query, you have the ability to specify the moment in time you want those query results to come back as. And is a, a graph style database, it's not only following the trees of the relationship and everything like that at that moment in time, but we also have a lot of analytical functions in there as well. You know, you could be doing sums of data, averages of data, all of that. You can issue a query with these analytical capabilities at any moment historically and get an instantaneous response. And instantaneously, most, most queries we respond in sub millisecond, um, regardless of the point in time. So we really optimize for this notion of time. Um, so you have this history that's provable, but now we give you a way of querying that history. So you get back results that you know you can prove is exactly what someone would have seen as a result from that query at that moment in time. And this starts to get really cool when you kind of bring this capability up to the UI layer when you're building an app. And you know, one of the things we did in one of our sample apps is right in the, the header of the UI, we put a time travel button. And we allow you to, you know, by default, it's using the current version of the database, like that's the only thing most databases do. But you can instead select any time, any moment in history, right in the header, and basically it just locks that moment in time for your queries, your data retrieval for the entire app. And you can now start just browsing around the app, looking at any screen, but you're looking at it as though it looked at that historical moment in time, and it's provable. So we think, you know, nowadays, if you're using Keynote or PowerPoint, you know, these all have like time travel capabilities in it. You can get back to all your different edits throughout history. Uh, even Google Sheets, all of this is allowing you to kind of see this history. Why shouldn't every enterprise application we build today also have time travel? And when you think that what that would take to make, it would be an immense effort. But in this case, Flurry just does it for you. you there are no additional development requirements needed to really uh, leverage this capability. And you can put a rewind button on every single application you build. And importantly, that rewind button is going to show data that is indisputably provable, that it could not have been tampered with and how every piece of data got there. 
And I would argue you could also apply this to social networks. You could apply this to a wide publishing, for example, like if you're building a publishing app where, you know, you need the different versions of, you know, all the different edits you're making uh, on a publishing platform, for example, uh, in social media, I, you know, this is, this solves the black hole problem. That's kind of what I call it. You know, you, if you've ever used Facebook, you know, try finding your post from three weeks ago uh, <laughs> and finding that one comment that you made on someone else's thread, like good luck. Um, if you don't save that exact like URL string, like and write it down somewhere, it's lost. Um, you've got to remember the exact path and you have to go through like a crazy UI and maybe you have to go to someone else's profile, look at their posts, like scroll through in time, go to their comments, like just to find where you made a comment. It's crazy like that we have to do that kind of stuff just to see the data that we've entered into the system ourselves. Uh, you know, just because you've commented on someone else's post or something like that on Twitter or like looking at all the, you know, when you're on a social network, like so much data gets input that just, you never see it again. Um, you know, there's a, there's kind of this like, you know, moment in time where you get access to that data where it's relevant for a moment or two, but try pulling it up two weeks later, try pulling it up a year later, it's gone, it's in a black hole. So this solves that problem so that you can build user interfaces that allow you to go back in time and say, you know, show me all my posts from a month ago, show me my posts from a year ago. Because um, okay. the data is there, it's living on their database, but they just haven't built a way for you to see it because they don't have a proper indexing system and they haven't built the UI and the interfaces around it. So to be able to do this, especially for like blockchain and decentralized applications, I mean, it's, this is gonna have a profound impact on what you can do with your data uh, and how you can access your data in time. Yeah, we think, you know, this idea of immutable databases locked in a moment at a time, you, you just start, um, you know, you do it for one reason, but you start seeing all these other problems, it actually starts to solve, which is one of the fun parts of this. Um, again, my background's more in enterprise technology, but one of, the, um, one of the issues that we always deal with is we're always doing a lot of integrations with other systems, and integrations always break. And the dreaded problem is that it breaks sometime in the middle of the night, you know, someone is checking on it at 8 a.m. in the morning, and they try and run the integration again, and it works. And in that, you, you actually want it still broken, you know, so you can figure out what happened and fix it so that it doesn't happen again. This sort of thing happens all the time. But with Flurry, you can actually grab the exact version of the database that was being used for that integration at exactly, you know, 12.01 a.m. in 0.23 milliseconds. And you can actually see and know what was in there, figure out what broke and fix it. Or, you know, we're dealing with things where we've got some web portal that allows people to look at products and prices. And, you know, someone in product marketing is changing a price or fat finger something. And then, you know, the customer's calling into support and saying, I just looked at this 10 minutes ago and it said, you know, it was $10 per part instead. Now it says it's $20 per part. And today we sort of shrug. We're like, I don't know. You know, it says 20 now. You have every provable moment in time. You can see not only was it $10 cheaper at that point, you also can trace back and prove who changed that data, whether it was changed multiple times in there. You just have every piece of information you need to solve so many problems. And um, it's really liberating. I can't, of course, I'm biased, but to me, I can't imagine going back to a normal database anymore. Yeah. And I literally just went through what you described. I had a delivery where the delivery was 
you know, it was supposed to come at, you know, it was a delivery service that was like supposed to be same day. I went and checked their website and it said that it was coming at 10 a.m. the next morning. And I'm like emailing their support, like, hey, like I ordered this for tonight, like what's going on? And of course, like 10 minutes after I email support, the delivery shows up at my front door, even though their website says that it's not coming until 10 a.m. the next day. So something screwed up in their database or in their system. And you know, their support people were confused, I was confused, the delivery person was confused. Um, and had they had this time travel functionality, had they had an index, you know, their developers could have gone in in time and saw what went wrong and fix it um, so that this doesn't happen again. Um, so I obviously I don't have any access to their back end, so I don't know what broke, but something clearly broke because their website was telling me a different delivery time than their delivery person who was on their way to my house. So, um, you know, this solves a lot of problems for situations like that. Um, and it's going to enable delivery services. It's going to enable, uh, you know, anytime you order anything online, it's going to enable them to be able to track these things properly and through time. So they understand like, Hey, this is why, you know, this didn't go through or this, you know, got delayed or, you know, the wrong thing executed and it told them the wrong delivery date. Um, they're going to be able to fix that now. So it's going to make our apps more reliable. Uh, and it's going to help, you know, help troubleshoot and bug fix and, you know, help developers build better apps. Yeah. And importantly, you know, this, the, the root of all this and really the, the genesis of what we were looking to build and accomplish is focused around bringing total trust and integrity to data. And, and the reality is, is that, you know, you'd have to argue pretty hard. I would be doubtful if anyone could truly claim that the data they're housing in their databases has integrity that someone hasn't manipulated it, maybe internally, maybe externally, that maybe some app that has root access to the database didn't have a bug in it, that maybe they were hacked and they didn't know it and someone actually changed that information. It, we do not know if any of the data that we're actually storing has 100% integrity. And what makes matters worse is that all these databases that we're using, they're update in place. They're overriding historical information as, as updates are coming in. So you don't even have an audit trail to even try and sort it out. And I think a lot starts changing when you can actually trust the data and it starts to eliminate you needing to trust other people. You know, even your example, you got a delivery, you know, truck vehicle that maybe got a data update at one point in time, then the company changed it later, but didn't maybe send it to the delivery people. So everyone's got different data, but we only have this one source of record that only says one thing. We don't know everything that happened in between. And when people can actually start trusting the data, uh, things like auditing goes away. Uh, an example I like to use is for anyone who's bought a house is title insurance. You know, we need to pay for this stuff every time we buy a house. And the whole root cause is that we don't trust the records. We don't trust the data. And, and we're, you know, susceptible to lawsuits or someone claiming that the, the county or the, the city doesn't have the correct records. They really own the land. So we spend $15 billion a year right now on title insurance. And if we have a record of this information that is provable, that can't be changed, that we would know if it was tampered with, I think a lot of these things that we spend money on or we have all these end arounds, um, they originate because we can't trust the source data. Um, a lot of them start to go away. 
Yeah. And I'd argue security is, you know, also a major component of that. And as we talked about earlier, you know, the permissioning system that you're building in at the database level, uh, that solves part of that issue as well. Um, because that's the other problem is, you know, these, uh, these traditional databases that we're dealing with now, you know, someone gets into that database with, you know, super admin access or root or whatever, uh, and they've got the whole thing. So, uh, you know, it's, it, that's why, you know, our credit agencies are getting hacked. That's why our health insurance companies are getting hacked. I mean, Facebook got hacked. Um, I mean, even my own mom had her, she was a part of the Facebook data breach. And so her phone number is being sold now on the dark web. So she's getting called by like robots on like a daily basis um, that are like trying to extract her social security number, like claiming she's going to be arrested or that she owes the IRS a million dollars and she has to call them immediately and give up all this personal information. She's been getting phone calls in Chinese. Like <laughs> Facebook, you know, she was one of the accounts that got, that was part of the Facebook hack and that data is being sold on the dark web right now. Um, yeah. had they run a properly permissioned database structure, uh, that would not have happened. Um, so if I understand, I don't know if they're still using it, but what I understood is Facebook was mostly built on MySQL and PHP, at least originally. I know they've now moved to react. Uh, but I imagine I'm pretty sure they're still scaling MySQL databases to run the back end of Facebook. Um, so that's, that's why if you get into one of those databases, you can just download, you know, 50 million people's records. Yeah, usually, usually the access point to those are, you know, the apps that are talking to the database pretty much have unfettered access because that's what we're building our security into. So when we have bugs in the app tier, which of course happens, then uh, essentially we risk exposing the entire database. That's not, you know, always what happens, but that's usually how these things start. Yep. And so we've, man, you know, I wanted to cover a few more things. I know you guys have a full REST API that's built into all this stuff, but, uh, you know, we've gone quite a bit here. So I've got to ask you, uh, what is some time in your life that you've had to hack something? Yeah. Well, I think I've hacked things a lot, but probably the one that uh, sticks out for me uh, the most is when I was 21 years old, I was a Midwestern boy, never really been out of the country. Uh, I was awful at school. I never actually graduated from college, kind of searching for something to do in my life. And the only thing I wanted to do was go see the country. Um, so I ended up uh, finding somehow this school where I could go learn to be a truck driver for a summer. And I went and I actually moved people. Uh, I was this, you know, really young looking 21 year old kid who'd show up at your house to move your furniture. Uh, and they paid me decently well, except what it allowed me to do was go see the country really for the first time. And of course, every single dollar I got every week from getting paid, I turned around and I was spending it because I was, you know, out in San Francisco or in Florida, or I was going to the beach or doing, you know, all these things that I wanted to do. But uh, yeah, it was a fun way of accomplishing that goal. That's an awesome hack. Uh, so, so that's interesting. So you, so you did not graduate school? No, I went to, uh, I went to college for about seven years, but, uh, no, no degree. I, I'm right there with you. I dropped out of, I, well, okay. I tested out of high school, went to college early, went to college for a little while, and then I just had to get out. Um, yeah. it was, but it, it's so fascinating because here we just had this like crazy technical conversation 
with two college dropouts, <laughs> you know, uh, and you're built this incredible software. Like, you know, you're, you're, I mean, this is the cutting edge. I mean, I like, I've seen a lot of databases. I've seen a lot of different software solutions out there. Uh, you know, you guys have definitely architected something here that, you know, I'm not used to seeing. Um, and this is along my own thought process of what I, you know, was suspecting we were going to need to kind of bridge that gap to decentralized applications because we needed something in the middle because, you know, you have all these, you know, you have all these developers who are used to building things on, you know, no SQL databases and relative databases. Uh, and now all of a sudden they're having to learn blockchain and decentralization and the tools just weren't there to kind of bridge that gap. I feel like you guys are kind of building that solution to be able to bridge that so that you know someone who's used to traditional databases can come in, understand some of the initial core functionality, and then start to leverage the decentralized components on top of that. Absolutely, yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. And you know, we're we're still early in this whole space, so uh, I guess we've done two things: we've created a tool that you can create custom blockchains out of, and we've also created a brand new type of database that I think solves a lot of problems. But um, it is a step in that direction of being able to more effectively just leverage these tools to take advantage of them. And, you know, I mean, anyone who was around at early internet days, I think we went through the same thing. Uh, we didn't have a lot of tools. We didn't have, you know, cloud servers or object storage in the cloud and all these sorts of things that make it easy to, and, and actually makes it kind of transparent for us today. We don't even think about cloud versus local or anything like that. So I think we're in a similar stage here, but definitely our focus is to try to make this technology and the benefits it brings more accessible. Awesome. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? No, I mean, uh, you know, we didn't really cover distributed consensus a whole lot and, no. <laughs> and a few other things, uh, but I feel like, uh, you know, we covered We might have plenty. to uh, have you back on the show for that one. So we got- Maybe another time. We covered a lot of ground and hopefully, you know, listeners got a lot of value out of this because, uh, you know, this technology is, you know, this is, this is the path that I think we kind of have to go down to be able to get to, uh, you know, these decentralized apps. Um, you know, we have to, we have to take advantage of the tech that's here today um, and, you know, start to build on that towards a decentralized future. Uh, and yeah. this kind of seems like a good foundation to start to get there. Uh, because it gives you the tools that you need to be able to do that. So you're doing the stuff at the database level, not having to worry about it uh, and trying to build it into your applications on, you know, the app side. Um, so it allows developers to focus on their front ends, focus on their user experience, focus on the features and functionality that, you know, makes whatever they're building unique. Um, and now they've got a reliable, you know, production ready database uh, that, you know, it sounds like you guys are also going to be open sourcing this soon, right? Yeah, yeah, we are, we are in the first quarter of next year, at some point, we're going to be releasing all of the, uh, the source code for FlurryDB, so. So that'll, I mean, that'll have a, hopefully have a profound impact and, you know, you can start to build a, a real developer community around this. So, um, you know, again, you know, this was awesome. So thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Uh, our website is a great entry point, which is flurry, F-L-U-R dot E-E, which is actually in Estonia uh, uh, domain name, but it keeps it nice and short. And uh, yeah, that's the best way. We got links there to, you know, Twitter and Medium and all those sorts of things. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure.
Oh, thanks so much, Trent. It's been great to be here. This concludes another episode of the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us at hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com for more episodes. Thank you for listening.